0: Pray with me, please. Father, uh, as we come this morning, God, we are asking you to uh, open up our ears, our hearts, and our minds, and that your word will sink in. We look forward to the things that we will learn this morning. God, we all have things that we need to uh, hear and do and uh, grow in our spiritual walk. And God, if there's people here the, today trying to, figure things out, um, let Your Word speak to them, and that they can know for sure who You are and who Your Son is and what He has done. So we ask all these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. An unrealized goal of mine is to write a book. Now, I have published some different articles, and of course I write all the time around the church, but I've never written a book. And I have a couple that I have started, but they're not finished. I've had a couple that I've thought, man, I want to get this to a publisher, and in fact, even had a publisher ask me about one at one time, but I have never finished a book. But because I have started them, I've done some research on what you need to do in writing, and I'm sure not nearly enough research yet. But I stumbled across something kind of interesting a number of years ago. There is a section in book writing and in authorship that most people overlook. It has a really interesting name. It's called back matter. Here it is up on the screen. Back matter. Actually, we'll take that S off of there, Terry. It's just called back matter. Now, I won't bore you with all the details of it. Here it is, just simplified. That is everything that happens in a book after the story or the main content, the back matter. You can find indexes there. You can find glossaries there. You can find appendixes there. You can find all kinds of different things included in the back matter. Well, this morning, my mind kind of comes to rest on one of those things that I just mentioned, the glossary. Now, I know that you know what one is, but so that we're all speaking the same language, let me give you a pretty good definition of a glossary. Here it is. It's utilizing a glossary in your book is a great way to define, list, and expand upon unfamiliar, made-up, or intricate terms used in the book. So authors will put a glossary in the back matter so that whoever's reading it can reference it and know exactly what they're talking about. I've read books through the years where if it hadn't have been for the glossary, I'd have been totally lost. They were using unfamiliar, possibly made-up, or intricate terms more than, often than not that just left me going, what? And so I was very thrilled to have access to the glossary. fact, I was in a series of meetings just this past week in Phoenix where a glossary would have been really handy. They were talking about some things that just blew my mind. It would have been wonderful if I would have had something in front of me to explain the unfamiliar or what I thought were made-up words, but they were really just using some intricate terms. Well, this morning, I want us to start with a glossary. It's not the back matter. This is actually the prelude I want us to start with a glossary of terms that are not unfamiliar to people in Christianity. They certainly are not made-up terms. They are intricate in nature, though. And if we will slow down and pay attention to them, we can find a depth of understanding in our walk with Christ that we may never have had before. And our glossary this morning is pretty small. It only has two terms. Here they are. Leading and calling. Now, I know you've heard that before. Somebody would say that they have experienced the leading of the Spirit, or they have been called into a certain realm of ministry. They get used all the time. So they're not unfamiliar. They're certainly not made up. The Bible uses them. But they are intricate in nature. Let's break them down real quick as we look at our glossary here. And I'm going to ask a guy named Gordon McDonald to help with this. I like his description of both. Let's start with leading. Here's what Gordon says. Leading, that's when God nudges us in daily life. He uses this example. I felt God leading me to give him or her a call. You may have experienced that type of a nudging at different times in your relationship with the Lord. That is that deep sense within you that you are supposed to do something. And no matter how hard you try to ignore it, you cannot ignore it. That's the leading of the Spirit. Then there's calling. It's a little bit different. Gordon describes it this way. A summons to a way of life, a responsibility, a long-term task, an acknowledgement that one is accountable to God for the discharge of your life's duties. There's a difference between leading and calling. And we do very well to understand the difference. You may have experienced both. You may have only experienced one. But somewhere along the lines in your walk with the Lord, you will be confronted with these terms. So I want to make sure that you are familiar with them. And I want you to know this. When we respond to the leading of the Spirit, when we respond to the call of God, in obedience, God applauds that. He applauds that. It thrills him to see his children respond to both of these things. This morning I want to show you what they both look like. So hopefully you're in Acts chapter 8 now. We're going to look at a couple of people that get overlooked all the time in the Bible. And what a mistake that is. I love these guys. This is Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 26. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, let's stop there for just a second. Are you familiar with Philip? Do you know who he is? Have you ever explored him in Scripture? Really, a unique individual. He truly is. Philip is not, in this case, the one that is mentioned in the list of the apostles. So we are not talking about the apostle Philip or the disciple Philip. We are talking about the servant Philip. Some people would refer to him as the deacon Philip. He only shows up four times in Scripture. That's what makes him so curious. But every time he shows up, God is doing something in his life. I want to walk you through his journey this morning so that you can see exactly who he is. His appearance in the Bible begins with the Spirit leading him. We'll go back to Acts chapter 6. We talked about this last week. Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 8 because we're coming back to it. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles are facing a problem. If you were here with us last week, you remember what that is. They were trying to do everything in the early church. These 12 guys had taken on more than they could handle, and it was overwhelming them. So they had a huge problem that they had to solve. One of the sub-problems is called out in the Bible. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Here it is. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Are you ready for this? And Philip and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." Now, I don't want to spend time this morning going back over the problem that the apostles were trying to solve. Like I said, we did that a week ago. What I want you to see is that Philip was a part of the solution. There was a problem, and Philip was a part of the solution. He was led by the Spirit to become that, a part of the solution. A lot of times when we are led by the Spirit, it is for that reason. There's an issue that needs to be taken care of. There's a problem that needs to be solved. There's something that needs to be confronted. And so the Spirit leads you to do that. Now, there's positive things too. Those all sound negative. Oftentimes, problems are positive things in the kingdom of God, just like this. But when the Lord says to you, hey, this is something you need to do, or you feel that urging deep within you, oh, pay attention to it. That's a leading of the Spirit. And that may very well be God saying, hey, here's an opportunity for you. Here's a problem that needs to be taken care of, and you're the solution. Isn't that a cool thing to think that the Lord looks at us and says, you're the solution? A lot of times when we are led by the Spirit, that's the message that is coming to us. In Philip's case, he was a part of the solution. He and six other men were the solution to this issue in the early church. Now, the next time we see him, he's going deeper. He's moving past just a leading of the Spirit into a calling. We find him in Acts chapter 8 that way. Let's go back. We're going to back up a little bit in that chapter. Verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. We've got to stop there real quick. If you remember, after Stephen was stoned, He was martyred for his faith. He was the first one listed of the seven that were a solution. Stephen became a preacher, and man, did he ever preach with power. It cost him his life. And as a result of Stephen being stoned, the church was scattered out of Jerusalem. A lot of times what we see as tragic, God uses for something really remarkable In fact, Joseph would teach that all the way back in the book of Genesis. What was intended for evil, God uses for good. When Stephen was stoned, it was intended for evil, but God used it for good. He needed to move the church out of Jerusalem, and so he did. Most of that was done through fear of the believers. They were running for their lives. They headed back to their homes, but they carried with them the gospel that they had just heard. Many of them had been taught for a few years in the way of the Lord. And so they carried that back to where they had grown up. The church was on the move. Biblically, we refer to it as one of the diasporas, the dispersions. This is the dispersion of the gospel. It's going all kinds of different places. Stephen wasn't the only one of those seven that were called to preach. So was Philip. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip, along with the remaining deacons, the servants of the church, they left when everybody else left. The apostles were the only ones who remained in Jerusalem. Now there were other believers that lived in that area that stayed, but as far as leaders in the church, the apostles, the twelve, They stayed right where they were at. They held the line. Even in the face of losing their lives, in the face of the persecution of the church, they were up against Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. He was a murderer. He was imprisoning people for their faith. The Apostle said, everybody else needs to get out of here, but we'll stay. We will hold the line. Some people would say that the apostles weren't a part of the dispersion then and they didn't get the privilege of of helping spread the gospel. Oh, yes, they did. Others would tell you, and I tend to agree with them, that that was a bold move on behalf of the apostles to say, we will stay right here. They're not going to have to look for us. We are right here. That's what godly leaders do. They hold the line. They hold the line. They hold the line of truth. They hold the line in boldness. They hold the line in the power of the Spirit. One of the great things at Libby Christian Church is that we have leaders that are willing to do that. And I've had the privilege of watching them through the years as they have held the line. And God has blessed them as a result of that. That's a cool thing. But then God uses other people to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. And right here, Philip is doing that. He headed into the Samaritan territories ahead of Peter. He went into Samaria and he preached before Peter got there. He was announcing the way of the gospel. And he was doing it with power. He was called to do it. He was called to do it. In fact, his calling would match that of the apostles. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, we read this. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. That's the same type of calling that Philip had. That's exactly what he was experiencing. And he preached with power. Man, oh man. Did he preach with power? So that's who Philip is. When we find him in this passage that we're reading in Acts chapter 8, that's just the background to give you the understanding of what Luke meant when he wrote those words. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Going on in verse 27, we read, And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 28 goes on to say, And was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now this is this incredible moment in Scripture that is ordained. It is set up by God himself. Philip needs to meet this eunuch so we go from him being led into serving and solving a problem in jerusalem to his calling to preach and now we see him being led once again by the spirit the spirit is nudging him saying you need to leave samaria get on this road heading south and you meet up with this person he went from leading to calling to leading and very often that's the way it works We will be led to do something, called into an area of ministry, and then within that area of ministry, led by God. See how it works? It's a nudging that leads to accountability to discharge the things that God has laid on our hearts. That's how this glossary helps us understand this. But now we have this other person at play in the the record that we're reading right now who is equally curious. Let's go back through his details one more time. And he rose and went, verse 27, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Oh, he's a curious guy. This is the only place in the Bible that you'll hear about him. This is the only place that he shows up. Man, did we ever get a lot of details about him. Dr. Luke gave them to us just almost rapid fire. This is who he is. He is a eunuch from Ethiopia, an official in Candace's world, in her treasury. He was a high-ranking official. But he had come to Jerusalem, which, by the way, is about 200 miles from home. He had come 200 miles for the sole purpose of worshiping God in Jerusalem. Now that's an interesting journey. He comes from a foreign land for the purpose of worshiping what we would ostensibly believe to be a foreign God. And he was a person of great position and power in his homeland. So why would he do that? Why was this man so interested in worshiping God that he would travel that far? It wasn't easy. It's not like getting in your pickup and driving 200 miles. This was a tough journey. Well, in the Old Testament, there are some great indicators as to why he would have been so interested in the worship of Jehovah. There are some great indicators that will blow your mind For how he would have known of the Lord being all the way from Ethiopia. We don't have enough time to go into those today, but I want to tell you it is worth studying. In fact, it is so worth studying that this winter I'm going to teach a series of classes called Winter in the Word. And we're going to talk about things like this that will blow your mind. And so I hope you'll be here for that, and you'll hear more about it in the the coming weeks. Winter in the Word, where we're going to address things like this. So let me just leave you with this thought. This guy knew who Jehovah God was for good reason. But he had a problem. As much as he knew who Jehovah was, he could not fully worship Him because the Old Testament law prevented it. The Old Testament law excluded him. Now let that soak in for just a second. According to Old Testament law, this man could never draw completely near to God. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 if you want to, and I encourage you to do that. It's a real simple verse that will explain to you why he wasn't allowed to draw near Today, he stands as an example of people that are spiritually sensitive. He stands as an example of people who know who God is, but they are not all in with Christ. They are not fully committed. For whatever reason, not fully committed. For the eunuch, he could be a God-fearer. and When he came to Jerusalem to worship around the temple, even though he couldn't go all the way in, he could stand at the gate and look. He was a seeker, one that really desired something deeper, but there was a barrier between him and his ability to experience that. Uniquely, God put it there. But now, under a whole brand new way of worshiping, the New Testament, because of Jesus, that was all about to change. And the Lord was using Philip to change it. What we are about to read is what I would refer to As a divine moment. God orchestrated this. This is a divine moment. If you were paying close attention, you saw that an angel is the one who came and told Philip what he needed to do. This goes beyond an angel's ability to bring about. The angel would not be the one to carry the message to the eunuch. Philip would be. Angels can't experience grace. Philip's going to bring a message of grace to this man. This is a divinely appointed moment. Listen close. We'll start again in verse 27. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Real quick, let's just clear this up. During those days, people read out loud. It was only about 200 years ago that people started to read silently. So prior to that, everyone read out loud. So when the eunuch was reading from the scrolls of Isaiah, he was reading out loud. So when Philip came near, he heard it. He wasn't eavesdropping. He just heard it. Do you understand what you're reading? For somebody who is worshiping under the Old Covenant, that's a curious passage, even though it's in the Old Testament. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Philip's sitting in his chariot with him now, and utilizing the book of Isaiah, he is able to share with him the whole truth of who Jesus is. It becomes this divinely appointed moment that has happened multiple times since then. I often say that there are six, six characters in every evangelistic experience. Here they are. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, The unsaved person, the evangelist, and then the enemy, the devil, who tries to disrupt it. Now take all six of these real quick. Let's go through them. God the Father calls all people to Him. All people. All people. God reveals Himself even through creation so that no one is without excuse. God the Son makes that calling possible. He did that by dying on the cross for us and then three days later rising from the grave. God the Son, Jesus, makes it possible for us to have a reconciled relationship with God the Father. God the Spirit is the one who sets everything up. He's the one who orchestrates divine moments. Then there's the unsaved person, and obviously that's the person that's seeking. In this case, the Ethiopian eunuch. And then you have the evangelist. Philip would be the evangelist in this particular account. And then there's the enemy who tries to disrupt it. Every evangelistic moment, every divinely appointed moment that I have ever come across looks just like that. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the unsaved person, the evangelist, and the enemy at work. And that's what we're seeing here in this divine moment. So Philip meets him in the chariot and from beginning till the end of of the tomb, he explains to him who Jesus is. So because this man understands the Old Testament, he starts there and he takes him through the New Testament, everything that's just happened in Jerusalem. And he helps him arrive at a place of faith. By the way, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17 says, "...so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. He brought it to him, and the eunuch heard it." The eunuch heard it. And watch what happens. We're going to pick up now. Verse 36, "...and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "'See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized?' And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Wow. Wow. He explained everything to him, and he was baptized. Leading of the Spirit took place in the eunuch's life. In fact, there had been several leadings. He was led to come to Jerusalem, and then he was led to head home, and then he was led to stop in a certain spot. And then when Philip came and he presented everything to him, the eunuch was led to be baptized, and he responded in obedience. Now, how in the world did he know to be baptized? There's no record of Philip having explained that. However, there's a lot of things that are not recorded through Philip's explanation. There's a couple possibilities. Number one, this man may have wanted to be baptized for a long time. Because when a person from a foreign land became a Jew, they were baptized. It's called proselyting. When they were proselyte Jews, they were baptized into the Jewish faith. All around the Temple Mount, there are things called mikvahs, they're baptistries, where proselyte Jews would be baptized. They were also used for ceremonial cleansing within Judaism. So this man had wanted to be in, or wanted to be baptized for a long time. He just couldn't be. He couldn't be, because he was prevented by God and the law from being baptized. So he already knew about baptism. Maybe Philip explained it to him and everything else that he shared with him because remember baptism fit in Jesus' last will and testament when he said to all the disciples, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded and I'll be with you all the way to the ends of the earth. So maybe Philip included it in there. Whatever it was, there was a leading of the Spirit within the eunuch's heart to say I need to be baptized, why can't I do it right now? Now, if you were reading really close, you may very well have seen that something was missing in the passage that we just read. Did anybody see something missing? Just raise your hand if you saw something missing. Okay? We're about to jump into something, and we're going to do it really fast, called textual criticism. Here it is up on the screen textual criticism. And I want you to pay close attention to the next couple of minutes because what we're about to talk about will help you in any argument that you ever find yourself in with somebody who says the Word of God cannot be trusted. In most translations, verse 37 does not exist. Look in your Bible again. You go from verse 36 to verse 38. In the King James Version of the Bible, there's a verse 37. Most other translations, there's no verse 37, at least not in the text. It is not omitted from the text. It is just moved to the footnotes because scholars would tell you that the most reliable manuscripts in the realm of translation do not include verse 37. But you may see this in your footnotes or if you're reading in the King James Version of the Bible, this is how it will read. This is verse 37 if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So there was a confession preceding baptism. Now here's the cool thing about that. It is completely consistent with the whole of the Bible. Romans chapter 10 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. So, there are a lot of editors that would say that Romans chapter 10 connects to Acts chapter 8. So, it was necessary to hear his belief and to hear his audible confession prior to baptism. And during those days, it was a requirement. You had to confess. That's the beautiful part of passages like this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Luke chapter 12, verse 8 reads like this. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. So, the scribe who included verse 37 understood the power of confessing Jesus audibly with your mouth in front of other people, and they included it in the text. It is consistent with the rest of the Bible, therefore it isn't wrong It's just that most people, as they are looking at it, the interpreters, they say it's not in the early manuscripts. And here's why I say that is one of the best tools you'll ever have for arguments against people who say the Bible can't be trusted. You take them to verse 37 and say, look how much care is given to the interpretation of the Bible. And you show them verse 37 in your footnotes and explain it to them. So across the top of the page in your Bible, write textual criticism. Or in the margin of your Bible, write textual criticism. Acts chapter 8, verse 37, you'll be able to come back to it. It's a cool passage. Now, one of the things that other scholars would tell you was necessary, or maybe even just the reason why it was so important that the eunuch confessed, was for all the other people that were traveling with him. They heard him say, I believe. I believe. And they were there to witness his baptism. If you move on in Acts chapter 8 then, you see another miracle of God. Pretty wild one. Fun to think about how this works. Verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. And Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. As soon as that moment was over, the Spirit of the Lord picked up Philip and took him. Just took him. Miraculously took him. It speaks of things that happened with Elijah in the Old Testament. Just took him. And he showed up 20 miles away in Azotus. 20 miles from where they were at. Philip shows up. And he preached for another 60 miles till he got to Caesarea. And he set up a house there. Apparently he got married. And he had some children. And his children became believers in Jesus. There's no record of Philip ever leaving Caesarea after that. There's no record of him ever being caught up in the Spirit and moved somewhere else. He just stayed in Caesarea and he preached. In fact, you can read about it. This is his fourth appearance in the Bible. This is Acts chapter 21, verse 8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They were believers. They were preachers themselves, sharing the gospel with anybody that would listen. By all appearances, Philip just continued to impact the community of Caesarea, place that he lived. People became believers because of his ministry, his calling. But his greatest calling was to that of his children, his family. They became believers as well. Because he responded to what god told him to do he followed the leading of the lord and he lived the calling of the lord and people became believers now the interesting thing is when luke says we came to caesarea he means himself and paul the apostle paul do you remember why the church had to disperse out of jerusalem because the apostle paul was killing believers and now paul's going to stay at philip's house Paul's going to stay at Philip's house. So my friends, he was living what he was preaching. He was living what he was preaching. And that had to require a certain element of leading from the Spirit too to say, it's okay, Philip, it's okay. You let him stay. It's an impressive thing when people respond to the leading of the Spirit and the calling of the Lord. And I want you to know that over and over and over again, God's there applauding. He was on that road when Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm convinced that Jesus said, hey, everybody come here and watch this. Watch what's about to happen. And when Paul knocked on his door with Dr. Luke in Caesarea, I'm pretty convinced that Jesus was saying, hey, everybody come here. You've got to see this. Paul's about to walk in. That's how God applauds. Obedience. Whether that's leading or calling, that's how God applauds it. So whether you're being led or being called, respond to what the Lord is asking you to do. Because I promise you this, there's something amazing on the other side of it. So you respond. Whether you're being led or called, you respond. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for these two guys and what they represent. Would you help us find ourselves in the passage that we just studied? Whether Philip represents us as a believer or the eunuch represents us as a seeker, help us find ourselves. In Jesus' name. Amen.